Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. So we are, we finished the Gospels, we finished the Old Testament, we finished the Gospels, now we're up to the sort of the epistle area. So the book of Acts plus the letters that are written. And again, this is one of the moments where in the chronological Bible, it's pretty interesting to me because we get to see where those letters, a lot of those letters are written within the time frame that the book of Acts takes place. So we get to see those letters kind of interspersed um, and see how they interact with Paul. The letters don't really start coming up, though, until we get to Paul. So we have a few chapters of Acts before uh, before we start interspersing those other those other letters. Um, uh, just out of curiosity, did anybody other than me um, watch Paul the Apostle over the break? I did. Jolene, you'd already seen it. You and me, we both had already seen it. Good job, though. Yep, and again, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched it in October. Does that count? That does count. <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, yeah, that's pretty good. One of the things, if for those of you who did watch it, and if you ever watch it in the future for the rest of you, one of the things that you'll see is the friendship between Luke and Paul and um and and kind of the respect that luke has for paul he's he's the younger uh believer he's being you know mentored by paul and um and that shows up really well in that movie you kind of get a sense of their their relationship their friendship how it changed both of them um and um and so that's pretty cool and the reason i mention that is because as you guys know and as it says here on the screen the book of acts is written by luke so luke writes his gospel but he's not done He's got some more things that he wants to say. And so all we're going to do tonight is read chapter one. Um, and uh, so I think it won't, I think it'll be relatively brief tonight, but we'll see if it's not, it's totally fine. There's plenty of room for you guys to, to interject if you have thoughts, but it is pretty introductory. And so um, we'll, we'll kind of see, but we're just going to do chapter one and then save uh, Pentecost um, and chapter two for next week. Um, Want to get a sense of the, his, you know, the what's happening in the world a little bit, at least the Western world. Um, and um, and get a sense of uh, of what kind of the themes and the purpose of the book of Acts are, um, as we often do when we start a new book. <clears throat> so um, Acts 1 uh, through 1, that should be 1, 1 through 11. We're not doing 11 chapters, just 11 verses here right at the beginning. Um, at, Luke says this. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So that should be really familiar to us. We just finished that. We just saw that other book that he had written to Theophilus, that being the Gospel of Luke. And we saw him write about all that Jesus began to do and teach. We saw him write about Jesus being taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So we should be kind of comfortable that we're right, we're right in step with uh, what's going on here. Uh, he goes on and says, after his suffering, he presented himself to them, that is Jesus, after he died and came back to life, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. I kind of like the the way Luke says that, that he, he appeared to them 
He presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs he was alive. I would think presenting yourself to somebody is enough proof that you're alive. Um, but I think he's talking about things kind of like, you know, where they were like, well, prove to us you're not a ghost, you know, and he'd, they'd, they'd touch his hands and he'd eat food. And I think that's the point is that over the next 40 days, he just is routinely alive, right? I mean, over the next 40 days, he does things like living people do. And so over and over, they're reminded and seen, yeah, he's actually here, he's actually alive. But Luke, being again, the the the, the careful, considerate, accurate historian that he is, who wants to give you an accurate record of things, he wants to be clear that there was really no room for doubt. You know, none of the apostles had any question at this point that Jesus was alive. It wasn't anything that could be put down to a one-day one stress-induced hallucination or, you know, or a matter of, of, of mob delusion. You know, it was over a period of 40 days, and in many ways, Jesus presented himself to them and kept telling them he was alive. And then for the next 40 days, it says he spoke about the kingdom of God. It's an interesting phrase. Um, kind of hold that thought. That's going to turn out to be important to the book of Acts. It says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So while Jesus is with them, one of the things he says to them is stay where you are, um, don't leave, uh, because you're going to get a gift, you're going to get some power. And when that happens, then I want you to well, he doesn't say it here, but then you'll you'll have this gift of the Holy Spirit, which will enable you to do other things. The implication is leave Jerusalem. Um, at this point, though, he's just saying don't do it yet. So he kind of tells them the Holy Spirit's coming. They're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Again, as we've talked about from their perspective, the Holy Spirit is not a foreign, it's not an unknown idea or entity. The Old Testament has the Holy Spirit throughout always comes when there are special needs and special things that have to happen. Now he's telling them that they're all going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, they could just think it's just them, that it's kind of like situations back in Samuel's day when groups of prophets would all be uh, anointed by the Holy Spirit so they could all prophesy. On the other hand, they might be having in mind, they might be thinking about um, the prophecy of Joel, which said that everybody was going to be anointed by the Holy Spirit. So I don't know where they are at in, in regards to this, but they could be going either direction with this. But he tells them that, and, and Luke here emphasizes that. He didn't tell us that story in the gospel. He's going back a little bit into the gospel before Luke's ascension. So he's going back in time just a little bit, um, and he's telling us that this is one of the things that Jesus mentioned. And again, just think about this. Why specifically, as he begins the book of Acts, of all the things that Jesus taught in the 40 days he was there, why is this the, the one quote that we get in this first section of Acts from Jesus? It goes on. He says, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So for 40 days, he's been talking about the kingdom of God. And they're saying, well, is it time now, right? We were wrong. We thought it was going to happen before you died, but now we see you died, you came back. Well, now it's time, right? Are you are you about to restore the kingdom to Israel? We're still oppressed by the Romans. You've done this amazing thing. We now believe you can do anything. Is it now time? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times and the dates or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What's interesting is he's answering their question, but they don't know he's answering their question in a sense. They ask him if he's about to restore the kingdom of God. 
he's answering them by saying, well, you won't know the times and dates, but while we're on the subject, what I will tell you is that you'll have the power of the Holy Spirit to go be my witnesses and preach to everybody across the world. And I think there is a connection, obviously, there between the kingdom of God and what they're going to be doing. In other words, they're going to be spreading the message of the kingdom of God. They just haven't quite understood that yet. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Um, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I, this is, again, slightly humorous. That, that, that You get the idea they're, they're looking. He, Jesus just kind of goes up into the sky. Again, we read that in scripture. We're like, yeah, yeah, he floated up into the sky. They're doing what most of us would do. They're like, wow, that was weird. And so they're staring into the sky where he disappeared. And they're wondering if he's coming back, maybe. And they're wondering where he went. And they're just... They're just astounded that he that he flew up into the air. Again, that's not a normal thing. Um, and so while they're standing there, the angels come. And it reminds me a little bit of when they said to, to Mary, why are you looking for the living among the dead? It's kind of the same thing here. They're like, he already told you he was leaving and he told you what to do. So he'll be back. Don't worry, he'll be back. And he's going to come back in the same way. It'll be visible. It'll be in the, in the clouds. It'll be from heaven. He's going to kind of return the same way he left. Um, so you know what to look for in a sense. So that's that's verses one through eleven. So what I want you to think about, and and I'll I'll give you an opportunity to give me your thoughts here. Some of these are easy uh, fill in the blank questions, which I don't often ask. But here's the things when you start a new book, or when we start a new book, we often ask. One is who's the author? So who's writing the book of Acts? Number two, to whom is he writing? And then number three, what are the main themes of his writing? So in these first 11 verses, does he give us any idea of what he's going to write about, of where he's going to go and what he wants to say? So these are the questions on the table. Let me just throw it out to you guys a little bit. Actually, I'll, I'll give you the easy one because it's it's almost embarrassing to answer the really obvious one. He, it's Luke who is writing. He already told us that. Um and um, and he's writing to someone named Theophilus. Now, if you want to expand upon those, tell me a little bit about what you know about Luke and how you think that will impact his writing. Tell me what who Theophilus is, if you have any idea. Uh, you can go ahead and do that. So now I'll be quiet and leave it up to you guys. Who's writing Acts? To whom is he writing? And what are the main themes or purpose of his writing? What do you guys think? Any thoughts? Well, wasn't Theophilus like a sponsor for Luke? Um, because at that point in time, doctors weren't necessarily real rich. Uh, having said that, Luke being a doctor was very keen on uh, detail and things making sense and following in logical order. Good. So a couple of things Pam mentioned. One is that the one, and this is one of the possibilities that Theophilus is some sort of um, patron in some ways of Luke, that he's an, affording Luke the, the ability to do his research, write his books, write his, his, uh, his well, his books, um, and that Luke himself is a doctor and a physician. And as a physician, that might be part of his personality that is so keen on sort of evidence and accuracy and order and method. Um, and that makes some sense. Um, anybody else have any other thoughts? Well, Theophilus means lover of God. Uh, it's Greek, right? And Correct. so he Let's may go. also be writing, he may also be writing more generally to the church, to any lover of God, just like to believers, um, I think. 
That's good. That is, we'll, we'll talk about both those possibilities. That is another possibility that Theophilus is just a nickname for believers um, because it is, that's true. It is a Greek word, which means lover of God. Um, on the one hand, it's not unusual. All Greek names, I mean, a lot of Greek names mean something. Um, so to say that it means lover of God doesn't necessarily mean that that is a nickname for the believers, but it certainly is an intriguing possibility. Um, and then the question would be why, why use a nickname? Um, uh, good. Uh, any other thoughts about any of this? It seems like, um, he's, um, one of the themes, or I don't know if it's a theme, but he's, um, kind of like set the stage of like who Jesus is and what he did. And then now one of the themes and what he's going to talk about is how they're, um, going to like go out and, um, share this message of who Jesus was and what he did. Yeah, that's good. In some ways, it's kind of like he starts where the other gospel writers ended with the Great Commission. Luke really starts with the Great Commission in the book of Acts. So definitely that seems to be important that he's he's going to, and and we know this is, this is called, um, depending who you ask, this book is called the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it depends on, uh, there isn't a definitive thing here, but um, but either way, it's things that are going to happen. We're about to see some activity, and Luke is going to write about that. And it has to do with their preaching and their spreading and the power that they have to go forth to all the world. So yes, very good, Meredith. That's that's definitely going to be a key key point in the book of Acts. Okay, those are those are all good, all all correct answers. Um, uh, let's let's look at these. Let's take these a little bit at a time. And uh, some of the things you guys said, you'll already see. Number one, who is Luke? Um, he's author of the Gospel of Luke. We know that. So again, we know where he stands there. Number two, he is a physician. It's fair to call him a historian. I, he is so careful, and he wrote these two long treatises, so to speak, on the life of Jesus and then upon the Acts of the Apostles, the, the kind of the, the beginning of the early church. And he's so careful about it. He's so methodical, as Pam pointed out. He's methodical and accurate. Looks like we lost Jolene. I'll let her back. Um, he's so methodical and accurate um, uh, that it does seem like, you know, that's part of who he is. And I kind of agree with Pam, being a physician, a historian, you can see a, a, a sort of a thread through there of somebody who's very evidentially oriented, evidentially oriented, to make up a word. Um, he's a friend and colleague of Paul. We don't know that yet. Um, that hasn't come up yet. We're going to find out through the course of the book of Acts, we're going to find the story out somewhat. Uh, about when Luke began to work with Paul and um, and that how he even came to be a believer and how he came to be a Christian and why he became so interested in collecting this writing. Um, because he writes so thoroughly and so well, it's easy to forget that he was not one of Jesus's apostles. He wasn't there during Jesus' life. He just really was a good interviewer and he asked people and he collected information and he found the information and he probably borrowed uh, from Mark and Matthew um, as well as good witnesses. So, um, but he's a friend and a colleague of Paul. And um, so that's one thing we know about him. Uh, and he's a Gentile. Uh, he's not a Jew, in fact. Um, it It is uh, uh, most likely he's a Gentile. We'll see in the book of Acts probably exactly when he hears Paul, even though he doesn't tell us that part of the story there's an interesting thing that happens in the book of Acts is in that he writes in 
um, third person for a certain section of it about things that they did. And then there's a moment at where Paul enters a certain town. And from that moment on, Luke starts writing in first person. He starts saying things like, we did this and we did that. He doesn't mention that Paul finds Luke or that Luke hears Paul or anything, but you can tell that's when he joins him at that point, because he starts putting himself in the narrative. I think his, his, his reluctance to talk more about his own story is just kind of typical, uh, again, of the, of the writers in the same way that John didn't even want to use his own name. Um, they're trying not to become the center of the story. Um, but that's also part of the theme, too. Luke has a couple of other people that he really wants to be central to the story, and it's just not him. He's not a key figure, and he doesn't want to be a key figure. Um, and uh, so that gets into themes, which we'll get to in a second. Who is Theophilus? You guys hit upon the, op the options. So uh, it is right. Theophilus means lover of God, and that is a Greek word. That's correct. Uh, oh. And so it could be either... A Roman individual um, or a, a coded church nickname. In other words, Theophilus could be an actual person, and maybe uh, Luke is writing to him because he is sort of a patron and he's like, he's like writing those ministry letters back. Um, it could be he's an actual individual that Luke is writing to for other reasons. I'll give you another possibility here in a second. Or it could be that he is writing to the church. You know, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the, the other Gospels were written to the church, mostly to people who were believers, so they'd know what the story was and what their origin was. And Luke just may be writing to the church and has chosen to call them lovers of God um, and to call them Theophilus. Now, the question is, why would he use a coded church nickname? Well, one possibility is because by the time Luke is writing, um, things are starting to get bad. Uh, persecution is starting to get worse. Nero is in charge. He's not a nice guy. Um, we'll save some of the details to that for when we get to that time. But but he's he, the persecution is starting to get significant. Um, and so in light of that, it might have made sense to Luke to sort of encode who he was writing to so that nobody could sort of be targeted by it. I don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense, because at some point, this missive is going to arrive at somebody's place. And whether their name is on it or not, if they're the ones reading it, um, obviously they're the ones it was attached to. So I, I don't know how much benefit the nickname really gives to their secrecy, but that's a possibility. Um, or like I said, it could be a, a Roman individual. Even if it's an individual, it could be a coded nickname. There it would make more sense because maybe he is writing to a specific person, but if it gets intercepted, he doesn't want people to know that specific person who maybe is higher up, who maybe is an important person in Rome. He doesn't want them to get in trouble if it gets intercepted. So he's using a coded name for that individual. That's also possible. So we don't really know who Theophilus is, whether it's one person or a representation of the whole church, but those are kind of the, the options there as we see them. Uh, the themes. You'll notice in those first 11 verses, we haven't gotten very far, but in those first 11 verses, Luke mentions the Holy Spirit several times. And, and he even goes back and he says that he describes what Jesus did differently. He describes how, I, he says, I wrote about in the gospel, in my previous book, he says, I wrote about how Jesus through the Holy Spirit taught. Well, that isn't something Luke said in the gospel of Luke. It's an emphasis he's now making in the book of Acts. And then from there, he goes on to talk about the one, the one sort of lesson he tells us about from Jesus to the apostles is that they should wait for the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit a couple more times just within those 11 verses. 
So the book of Acts, part of the theme is to talk about the Holy Spirit, to talk about how God, in the same way that the gospel was to talk about how Jesus was God invested in the world of man. Now the book of Acts is talking about how the Holy Spirit is God invested in the world of man. Um, and so that's a that's a significant theme throughout, and you'll see a lot of that. Number two is, and this goes right along with that, is the idea of a spiritual kingdom. So the kingdom of God, but now there's a lot more clarity as we go through the book of Acts. And this is, again, that discussion that Luke tells us about at the beginning, where they're like, well, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And essentially, Jesus begs the question, but in essence, it's because he isn't restoring the kingdom of Israel. He's restoring the kingdom of God. He's restoring a spiritual kingdom. He's introducing a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly one. And Luke really emphasizes that a lot throughout the book of Acts. And there, again, I'm going to give you my pet, pet favorite theory on why he emphasizes that. But for whatever reason, that's a theme that carries out through the book of Acts. And this is where we get into one possibility of what the book of Acts is about. And this is just, I happen to like this theory I, I didn't make it up, um, which makes me feel a little bit more comfortable about it. Um, but I also haven't seen it a lot. So that might mean there's reasons this doesn't, you know, maybe there's good reasons this isn't a good answer. But I will share with you why I think it makes sense. And here's what I mean by a defense of Paul. We know that at the time that Luke is writing the book of Acts, Paul is in prison. He's in Rome. He's in prison. And he's likely to be executed. Now, even right now, today, I don't, I, I just mean, uh, well, what am I saying? At this moment in time, I don't mean literally today, but although maybe today, at this moment in time, there's a lot of argument among historians and commentators who are interested in the, the timing of the book of Acts and the church and Christianity. There's a lot of argument about whether Paul, when Paul was executed, um, and whether he was executed the first time he went to Rome and was imprisoned, or whether he got out of prison traveled around a few more years, wrote a few more letters, and then went back to prison and got executed at that time. The traditional view has been that Paul was executed the second time he was arrested. If you watched Paul the Apostle, their theory is that he was executed probably, although they don't make it clear in the movie entirely, but they lean into the idea that Paul was executed that first time he was in Rome, that he never got out after that. So we don't really know for sure which is true. What's interesting, though, is that the book of Acts also ends, the reason we don't know is because the book of Acts ends without telling us. And there's not really any reason that it should, shouldn't tell us. In other words, there's no reason to think Luke died before Paul did. And there's no reason to think that Luke didn't know if Paul was executed. So if he wanted to, he could have finished the book of Acts. He could have told us, hey, Paul got out and he went on to preach other places. Or he could have said, and then Paul was executed, but he doesn't. He actually ends with a with this idea that Paul is still in prison, kind of a house imprisonment. He makes it sound semi-comfortable, although there's some questions about that too. Um, and and so there, there really is this question of why does he end the way he does? Okay, all that is to say, Luke is writing the book of Acts at the time Paul is in prison. And some people think that... What is happening is that Luke, being a physician, being a respected Greek, that he had a certain amount of influence and that what he was doing was writing a sort of a friend of the court brief in defense of Paul. That as Paul is in prison getting ready to ex be executed, Luke writes this long treatise on the book of Acts and perhaps even the gospel because they're both 
written to the same person. He writes this long treatise, which, in, which perhaps is intended to be a defense of Paul, to show why Paul is not guilty of the thing he's accused of. Now, you guys kind of know how this works. Let, let me just ask you as a, as a way of reminder, somebody remind us why, what was the ostensible reason, um, at least what the Pharisees told Pilate, what was the reason that Jesus should be executed according to the Pharisees when they spoke to Pilate? Does anybody remember? He was um, trying to overthrow the government, right? That's correct. Yeah. Or, yeah. That's Not, correct. Yeah. Yep. The Pharisees <laughs> said it was because of blasphemy, but then when they went to Pilate, they said it was because he was trying to overthrow the government. So it won't surprise you to know that the reason Paul's in prison is the same thing, that they're saying he's trying to create a kingdom to combat Romans, Rome's kingdom. He's trying to overthrow the Roman government. And so Luke, in his defense, wants to show that, in fact, Paul has no interest in an earthly kingdom. Paul has no interest in overthrowing the government, and that even the Christians themselves are not a revolutionary group, and they're not interested in overthrowing the government. And that might be the explanation of, of Luke's uh, plan in writing the book of Acts. And so here's my brief defense of, of this idea. Number one, the aforementioned Holy Spirit in the spiritual kingdom. Why does Luke emphasize so much that all these works are the works of the Holy Spirit? And why does he emphasize that what they're building is a spiritual kingdom? Well, you can see that makes sense if part of his point is to defend that Paul wasn't trying to build an earthly kingdom. then And even that Paul wasn't responsible for what did happen, in a sense, that it's the Holy Spirit's fault, not Paul's. And that what's happening is not a revolution, not anybody trying to overthrow Rome, but something just non-threatening to Rome in that sense. Um, second thing is, Luke emphasizes two people throughout the book of Acts. One is Jesus, who uh, obviously Jesus is the emphasis and should be for lots of reasons, even though he's not walking on the earth at this time. The other one is Paul. Now, again, we don't get to Paul for a few chapters, but it is pretty clear that the book of Acts is about Paul. There's a lot of other apostles doing a lot of other things. Peter's doing a lot of stuff. James is doing a lot of stuff. John's doing a lot of stuff. He could have chosen to write about any of them and had enough to fill a book, and he could have called it the Acts of the Apostles. Why is he focused upon Paul in particular? Well, two reasons. One is, obviously, Paul is an important figure in the early church. There's no question about that. But he's not the only important figure. So what's the other reason that he's really focusing on Paul? Well, again, my argument is because he's writing a defense of Paul, because Paul's in prison and Luke is trying to, uh, to get him out and show that he's not a threat. I already mentioned that the ending, Acts 28, ends sort of peculiarly, given what we know about the history. It ends with Luke saying, you know, and, and Paul stayed in his rented house, which is a house of imprisonment, and it, he may have been upgraded. Uh, the movie comes up with a reason for that. Um, which we don't know its history at all or not. He, he but the, I won't spoil it by telling you why. But but there does seem to be some indication that even if he wasn't released, he did kind of get more comfortable accommodations as time went on. So Luke kind of ends with that. He was in a rented house and people came to him far and wide, and he preached the gospel to them without without shame. Is basically how Luke ends it. But again, that doesn't tell us what happened. Did he get out? Did he get executed? Those are the two options. The fact that he ends there could be because that's where Luke stops writing, because his defense of Paul is right there. And he wants to say, even at the end of his defense, look what Paul's doing. He's not trying to overthrow the government. He's not ashamed of what he's preaching. He's preaching a spiritual kingdom. You can go hear him do it in his house imprisonment right now, and you'll see that nothing he's doing is subversive in the way that you're worried about. It is subversive in other ways, but 
Um, another thing that's interesting about the book of Luke, I mean, the book of Acts is there are, there are an unusually high number of positive stories about centurions. There are a lot of good centurions. Um, now, maybe it's just that Luke is trying to help the Jews overcome their own bias against the Romans. Or it could be that, again, he's writing this for the Romans, and he wants them to see that even the centurions aren't threatened by what happens. And then there's the whole uh, thing that is addressed to most excellent Theophilus. Why is he addressing this to a Roman at all? Um, why is he addressing, and this, this phrase, most excellent Theophilus, it's kind of the, the language that you would use when you address a, a, a superior. Could it be this is a judge? Could it be this is one of the people who's going to be responsible for determining uh, Paul's fate? Uh, we don't know. The language certainly doesn't argue against that. Um, so there you go. There's my argument that possibly, I would never be adamant about this. There's not enough evidence. But I would argue that possibly what Luke is, is writing in the book of Acts is a friend of the court brief, a defense of Paul, because Paul's in prison and Luke is trying to get him out. Um and uh, so that's my thoughts on that. Anybody have any thoughts on my thoughts before we move on? Well, I like that you pointed out about the centurions because I hadn't even really like thought about that or noticed that. Well, now you'll get a chance to notice it as we go through. Okay. <laughs> or to say, I don't see it. What are you talking about? That's possible too. <laughs> I don't talk about a centurion at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay, moving now away from my speculation and into into some more uh, solid ground. Um, a. N. Sherwin White, who I'm sure is somebody you're all very familiar with, as a 1960 expert in Greco-Roman history from Oxford. I'm sure you all were just waiting to hear from him. Um, nonetheless, uh, he is he is. Uh, uh, I, I wanted to give you the time frame, 1960, so that gives you kind of an idea of of when this is. Um, you know, it's not back in the 1800s or something. He is an Oxford history expert. Um, he is not, I don't have any idea what his faith position is. Um, but he writes this about the book of Acts and about, yeah, about the book of Acts specifically. He says this, this historical framework is exact. In terms of time and place, the details are precise and correct. As documents, these narratives belong to the same historical series as the record of provincial and imperial trials in epigraphical and literary sources of the first and early second centuries AD. For Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. So his, his position is that not only is it really clearly accurate, but his position is you can even look back throughout history at Roman historians and see that they just they saw Luke as somebody who was writing accurately about the times. Um, and this is another one, I think I mentioned this before, but this is where primarily, I might've mentioned it in the gospels, but um, and there's a couple examples in the gospels, but through the book of Acts, there is this interesting thing that happened, uh, and, and a lot of it was made clear around the 60s, but has continued to perpetuate since then. Up until about the 1960s, 1950s, around that time frame, there were things, there weren't, we, we, we had limited examples of New Testament documents. And so, uh, and, and archaeology was, was not where it is today. And so there wasn't a lot of evidence to either support or deny things that Luke said in the book of Acts. But starting around the 50s and into the 60s and even beyond Anne Sherwin-White, what we've seen is 
uh, what he says, that confirmation is overwhelming, that more information we get always tends to fall down on the side of Luke. And in particular, in the book of Acts, what's fascinating is there are two or three examples where he says something that up until a certain time we thought was wrong. In other words, he, he would say something and, and historians of the 40s and 30s and 20s were saying, well, Luke is wrong. They didn't use that term then. Or Luke is wrong. That kind of position didn't exist yet. And then in the 50s and 60s, they suddenly find evidence that Luke is right and we were wrong. And what's fascinating about that is, again, it just shows that Luke was closer to it than we were, that our the confusion came from our space, not the other way around. And the further back we get with our information, the closer we get to what Luke says. So anyway, it's always fascinating to me. Luke is very accurate and very detailed, precise and correct, as A.N. Sherwin-White says. So there you go. I just thought that's a encouraging quote that you might be interested in seeing. Okay, so Acts 1, 12 through 26. It says, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from a hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. So you've seen that, again, we're in familiar territory. It's really kind of nice reading the book of Acts coming out of the Gospels. Um, unlike coming from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we don't have 500 years. We have to kind of explain how things changed. We already know. We were familiar with things like the Mount of Olives. You know, we understand, oh, yeah, we've heard about that. We know what's going on there. So they, they return to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. This is after Jesus leaves. He goes up in the, he's, he ascends, and then they, they walk. And it says a Sabbath's walk from, Sabbath day's walk from the city. What that means is it's a very short walk. You're not allowed to walk past, I don't remember what the exact uh, mileage is, but you're not allowed to walk a certain amount on the Sabbath, right? Because you're not supposed to be working. So if it's a Sabbath day's walk, that means it's a very brief walk. It's a short walk. Um, so it's a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room they, where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So we have kind of the, the three groups of, of core believers listed here. One is the apostles, and the apostles haven't changed since Jesus identified them, with the exception of Judas no longer being there, uh, the, the bad Judas. It's unfortunate if you're the good Judas and you have the same name here, but um, but then there's also the women, which we're always told about, uh, and never tells us how many, but there's quite a few. There's at least, I would guess, as many apostles at this point, based upon the various references we've gotten, uh, maybe right around that same, but there's all the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is also part of Jesus's family. So it mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we've kind of got the apostles, we've got the women, and then we've got Jesus's family. And they're all together, and they make the core. They aren't all of them. There are other disciples. Uh, Paul tells us there were a couple hundred at least um, that Jesus spoke with. So, But this is the core. These are the core committed faithful to the, this is what you could call in many set ways the church at this point. This is who they are. Not huge, um, but but they all have seen Jesus repeatedly. They've all been taught by Jesus for the last 40 days, and here they are. Um, and then it says, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. So there we go. The larger group, uh, beyond just these apostles, the women, and the, and the brothers, the larger group is about 120 at that time, it says. Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. 
So there's some logistics that have to be taken care of. And we see that Peter, not surprisingly, has at least some degree of a role of leadership. And I think it it fell to him for a couple of reasons. One, because Jesus sort of anointed him with that in their last conversation. Take care of my lamb, he said. Take care of my sheep, he said. Um, but also because that's Peter. We know who Peter is. And so he stands up and he says, you know what? It's happened, right? This, we're, we're sad that we lost Judas. We're sad that Judas betrayed us. It was prophesied. The Holy Spirit said that it would happen. You can see it through David. He kind of references the scriptures. And he says, so now that it's happened, though, he's about to get into the point of saying we need to replace him. Now, why do they need to replace him? I don't know. Apparently, they just felt like they needed to have the same number uh, that they had. They needed to have 12. And so they say, we have 11 apostles. We need a 12th one. And that's what they're about to say. Before that happens, though, and let me just see my notes here. So we get a list of the apostles. We get another reference to the Holy Spirit. Yep, which we've seen here. And then we get a question about Judas's death. Before he launches into the, what the purpose of his statement is, the logistic need to find another apostle, he says this. He says, with the payment, and this is Luke, actually, not Peter. Luke is saying this. This is parenthetical. He's telling us what happened to Judas. He says, with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. And there he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. And everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field, in their language, Acheldama, that is, the field of blood. Now, does anybody see anything peculiar about this account of Judas's death? Well, before it said he hung it himself, and then yes. here it seems a little different, although they could go together. Yeah. 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 Matthew told us that Judas went and hung himself. Matthew told us two things, told us that he took his money and threw it at the priests and then went and hung himself. Luke says Judas bought the field with the money he got and then fell headlong and burst his intestines uh, all over the ground. So how's that work? Well, I think what Meredith said is just true. They actually, there is a plausible way to put them together. Jim Bishop, whom I've mentioned a couple of times uh, in his book, The Day Christ Died, he reconciles them in this way. Now, there's no way to prove he's right or wrong, but his answer is plausible. Um, and it does make a certain sort of sense. And it comes back again to the idea that different witnesses emphasize different things. And the question isn't that they're not allowed to do that. Of course they are. Um, the question is, can both things be true? And I tend to believe that scripture, I tend to believe, I do believe that scripture is infallible, um, inerrant, um, and this would be a, a big question about that. If, like me, you believe it's inerrant, let me give you a plausible explanation for how these apply together. First of all, it says he threw the money at the Pharisees, but we are told in Matthew that they took the money and they used it to buy a field. Um, and so it is fair for Luke to say that the money that was that that was uh, that he received the payment for was used to buy a field. Um, and so he didn't specifically make that choice, but he threw the money at them and they bought the field in his name because remember, they didn't want the money back. They didn't want it. They felt bad about it. So they bought the field in his name. The second thing is, it is really peculiar. This story by Luke is peculiar. Take out Matthew for a second. Don't even worry about that contradiction. It's such a weird thing for a doctor to say. It's a very detailed description, but it's not one that happens every day. I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I trip headlong, you know, more than a few times in my life. And in none of those times have my intestines spilled out. 
Um, and, and it is a weird thing. People fall all the time and their intestines don't spill out. The only time that you even think something like that would happen is if they fell a really long distance, like a really long distance. And even then, that isn't often the result. It isn't that their intestines fall out. They break all their bones. But that, that just is such a weird description of what happened. And so Jim Bishop says there is a way that this works and even makes sense with the weirdness of that story. And so what Jim Bishop says, oh, and it's a field. So as far as falling a long distance, it's not like the bottom of a cliff or something. So it's just a field. And so Jim Bishop says that what happened is Judas hung himself uh, from the tree and was left there. Uh, it's cursed to be hung from a tree. Nope, the apostles certainly weren't going to come get him and bury, give him a proper burial. And nobody else was going to worry about it. He was not a, he had nobody on his side. So he hangs on this tree just uh, decomposing. And at a certain point, both he and the rope have decomposed enough that the rope breaks or, uh, or his neck falls apart or whatever, and he falls to the ground. And at that point, it would be possible entirely that he would fall to the ground. And because he's so decomposed, it would just all be mush. Uh, you know, he would, his intestines would spill out and it, there it would be. And that people would then look at that field that had been bought in Judas's name and say, yeah, that's a, that's a field of blood. And it, what an ignominious way he died. It just kind of adds indignity to indignity. So that's the way uh, Jim Bishop reconciles those two. And my thought about that is, it's plausible and it works for me. And when we get to heaven, we can ask for sure. But that that seems like a plausible explanation. Yes, Meredith, you had a thought or a question? Well, I was also thinking too, I mean, weren't there a couple Sabbaths there in there too? So, I mean, I don't think that they would necessarily do something about him during those no, for sure. And they definitely wouldn't. And I think it's very possible that either no one knew he was there, or even if they did, I just don't know they would have done anything. Because again, they weren't happy with him. They weren't inclined to go cut him down and bury him. And the Pharisees don't want anything to do with him. There really is literally, he has no friends at this point. So it, it wouldn't be that unusual to me that he would just be left there, um, even if anyone knew he was there. And that's the other possibility. Maybe nobody even knew he was there, right? right until until he'd already decomposed. So, yeah. Also thinking, because we were talking about them getting um, another apostle. And I mean, I know in Revelation, it talks about like the 12 like apostles, like with the 12 tribes, right? But I didn't know if there, I mean, that's afterward, but I didn't know if there were like any prophecies like in the Old Testament or something that might kind of indicate to them like, oh, we should have 12. Um, I, I probably, I would guess there are. And I would also guess that there's something very um, tidy and therefore appealing about having the same number of apostles as you have tribes, right? So I think yeah. that, that would be something even without a prophecy that they would be like, well, Jesus probably did that. You know, I could see them thinking, he may have done that on purpose, right? 12 tribes, 12 apostles. He even said something about the apostles leading over the tribes. So maybe they're like, well, one of our tribes will be without a leader if we don't do this. I mean, I, I could see a lot of yeah. a lot of ways they would connect those ideas. Even though there were like 13, but they never all seemed to like make it in the same one. But there were still 12 kids of Jacob, 12 sons of Oh, Jacob. as far as the tribes? Yeah. Yeah, the tribes get... Yes, the tribes are very messy, as we all saw throughout the Old Testament. Yeah. 
Because then you got Joseph who becomes two, but then you lose. Sometimes you don't count the Levites and sometimes you don't count Judah and sometimes you don't. Yeah, it, it, it's it's all pretty messy. I agree. Well, it's so, Reuben, right? Reuben gets booted. And Reuben gets booted. Yep. Yep. All right. Um, Peter goes on. He says, for said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So the, the purpose, that the, both the definition and the purpose of apostleship is given here, at least at this point. Now, the definition of apostleship actually changes a little bit as time goes on, which I think is perfectly acceptable. That it's it just happens. A lot of the things in the church change as time goes on, which I think is a good lesson for us that that's okay. Certain things aren't sacrosanct. But at this point, their their methodology, their definition, and their purpose for apostleship is really clear and makes a lot of sense. It's just over time that that diminish, that changes. Right now, the definition is somebody who is with Jesus' ministry from beginning to end. Somebody who is with him from the baptism all the way up to the resurrection. And the purpose is so that that person can be an accurate eyewitness to the resurrection. So that if anybody asks, there's always this 12 people who can say with certainty, yes, we, we saw all of these things. We know they're all true. And we know that Jesus is alive. And I think that is really important to the early church to have a, a solid group of people that, that as time goes forward are also all willing to die for this truth because they of all people would know if it was a lie and wouldn't you would they wouldn't be willing to die for it if they knew it was a lie. So I think to have them being solid and stable and 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 witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus and to have been people who were there all the whole time, not a Johnny come lately who's like, oh yeah, I was there too. Really, I was, but they were with Jesus from the beginning. That's kind of the purpose and the definition of the apostle at this point. And so from among all the people that are, that fit that that criteria, we don't know how many there are. But from among all the people that fit that criteria, they nominate two men. And that's what it says. So they nominated two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice. Why people have to have three names throughout the Bible. Just they're really greedy about names. Uh, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Um, so we have that, that story. This is how we get the, the 12th apostle here, which is Matthias. And it is, again, another surprising reminder that in their, in their conviction about the sovereignty of God, the idea of casting lots, which is not completely dissimilar to rolling dice. It's, not, it's a little bit more complex, but not a lot. Um, and so the idea of casting lots or rolling dice to, to make a determination um, they just convinced God can control that roll of the dice. Now, I think it's important to note that they didn't, they also picked two people first. So they did, they did, you know, work together, all 120 of them nominated two people. So they didn't, they didn't remove their own activity in God's sovereignty. And then they prayed specifically about that and said, okay, we're going to trust you to lead us to where we need to go. But I think all things being equal, they looked at the two and they said, we can't judge who should be the person from the, these two are equally qualified. These two meet all the qualifications. So from here, God, we're going to leave it up to you. And they cast lots. 
um, I once suggested, and I was definitely joking, um, that we pick our next elder in our church this way. And um, the board uh, uh, wanted to make sure I was joking. They were very concerned. I wasn't, but yes, I was. <laughs> uh, yes, Meredith. Oh, you can go ahead, Lorian. Oh, I'm confused a little bit going back up to when Pete first gets up because the two Psalms he quoted seem to say opposite things to me. Yeah. And one of them seems to say we shouldn't be picking a person. Yeah, I was, I was, I was contemplating whether to, to bring this up or not. Uh, but yes, I, I, I'm with you. When I first read it, I absolutely thought the same thing. I thought this is weird because first it says, "May his place be deserted," don't, which sounds like don't <laughs> replace him. And then it says, "Right," he says, "Let there be no one to dwell in it." Yeah, yeah. And, and then it says, "May another take his place of leadership." So there's two thoughts that occur to me. One is that Peter is actually making a, a sophisticated argument that we are only getting like this, this, this superficial level of. In other words, he's acknowledging this first psalm, which is what maybe some people were using to say we should not have somebody else take his place. But then he's saying, yeah, but look at this other psalm, which says this. So he's it may be that he's making a a, a, a a more sophisticated argument that we know and we're missing what the like lynch point is, but he's simply pointing out there is this other verse. Then I wondered about Luke's parenthetical phrase and where it fits. And I wonder if Luke puts it in there to help us understand that the first Psalm is not talking about him being a leader, but it's talking about that field being deserted. It's talking about this oh. is when should ever build or work on this field again. And if that's the case, that might be part of the sophisticated argument Peter's making is he's saying, this psalm wasn't saying we shouldn't replace him in leadership. It was saying we shouldn't build in that field because this psalm says we should replace him in leadership. Now, you can see why I didn't go into all this, because if it wasn't a question to any of you, that's a whole lot of words that I'm not 100% sure about. Um, but since you brought it up, that was the thinking that went through my head. Do you have any other thoughts or clarifications on it yourself, Laureen? No, I, I didn't have any. He's just really bad at proof texting. He wanted to, he took the one that proved his argument, but then felt guilty about it. And was like, there's also one that does it. <laughs> you must well, it know. Seems, it seems like maybe the parenthetical phrase or whatever would, if, would be later if it was like referring to, I guess he maybe his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And then, and then it have the, with the payment he received or whatever. I don't know, but yeah, but that isn't what I was going to say anyway. So you guys can talk about that some more. Um, well, I guess it's, uh, maybe it's even like the first one indicates kind of a clean slate. We're picking someone else for this place of leadership, but you're not really filling Judas's place, right? If he's the betrayer, that's not what you that's are true. you're just taking his place of leadership you're not going to dwell in his role in the same way that's good that actually makes a fair amount of sense i think what's obvious is that they weren't confused by it right i mean he said this and they weren't like right. hey, supposed to do this or not they they heard this and were like yeah let's do this so i don't know but i agree with you it isn't immediately clear to me or even secondarily clear <laughs> to like me. therefore <laughs> it is necessary <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly no that's a good catch Lorraine I was going to skip over it but you you had to you had to be alert and bring it back back well I was just going to say also like with the casting lots um like God had told them to do that in the past so it makes sense oh. that 
that would sure. be a way for them to for sure yeah. i mean you know when you, when you really believe in god's sovereignty and god asks you to make decisions believing in his sovereignty it is interesting how often the old testament and and the new testament like here is a mix of the activity of humans and then the complete sort of like okay now it's now it's your call god and we're going to do it in this weird way I think back to the umum and the thurum, right? If you guys remember back to the law, they had this weird thing for a while where when they went to the priest, with the, they would ask yes or no questions. Um, and the, the priest would simply reach into a bag. And if he pulled out the umum, the answer was yes. And if he pulled out the thurum, the answer was no. And if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, that's just nuts. That's just like, that is just flipping <laughs> a coin. Um, but But they did. And God told them to do it that way because he really wanted them to be that reliant upon him. I don't know exactly what the implications are for us. You know, I think again, my my jokingly saying we should pick an elder this way. I don't think that's a good application. Um, but but in a sense, even when we do, you know, we think we we careful, we plan, we come down to a couple of people that are kind of on the list, and then we discuss it as a board, and we're like, we feel like either one of these guys would be an elder. Often we did then resort to we'll go home, pray about it, and come back. And I don't know how much different that actually is. We're still then just depending upon a sort of a feeling that God is giving us, which is not really, you know, I mean, maybe that's even less reliable than umum and thurum. I don't know. But so I, I think there is always that tension for believers between I really trust God's doing what he's doing. So in a sense, at a certain point, I'm going to flip a coin. At a certain point, I'm just going to go and make a decision. I think there is some of that ultimately, maybe inevitably. Well, and but the both the things you mentioned the casting lots and the thermum predate all believers having the Holy Spirit and obviously the Holy True. Spirit doesn't work in the same way where you can you know just like there's still discernment involved and it doesn't always answer necessarily in the way that we think but there is kind of this they sort of serve as precursors to God is going to direct you in a really specific way. That's yeah. a really good point. You're, that's a really good point that they predate the Holy Spirit. I think that's actually really important. You're right. Well, and this still predates the Holy Spirit. Right. Sure does. Sure does. And and I think also it's interesting that even, even the other thing that's interesting about both the Uman and the Thurum and the Lots is that you have to have, you have to have had enough discernment already to narrow the question down sufficiently. Um, both of them require you, you're in a, you know, either or question. Um, which means you've 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 had to put some into it, just like knowing that it's one of these two. They've already had a criteria, they've looked at the qualities, and then they've nominated two people. So there is something about these that also required a certain amount of effort. It wasn't like you could just go to the priest and say, you know, what should I do with my life today? Well, that you're not going to get an answer to or Thurum for that. You have to have a specific question in mind. So there is something about that, which I think is also relevant. Yeah, relevant. Kind of to, to center you a little bit, give you a little chronology of 81 through 50, give you a little timeline um, of what's going to happen. It's really 1 through 68. I don't know why I said 50. Um, 1 through 68, which is basically the length of the book of Acts, give you a little timeline of kind of what's going to happen. But this won't take very long. So if someone else had other thoughts, uh, I'll let you get to those here in just a second. Let me just walk through this quickly. So 27 BC, uh, obviously, is before the book of Acts, but just to center us a little bit. In 27 BC, Augustus Caesar is reigning. He is the emperor of Rome. And in, in, uh, aside from China um, and, and kind of the Far East, he's the ruler of the world uh, in a lot of ways, um, pretty close to. 
There's still some other places, but pretty close. Uh, 4 BC, 7 AD is when Jesus is born. Now, obviously, at one point, we would have said zero. That's how we came up with our numbering. I don't, I don't think we'll ever get to a definitive uh, year. Um, I just don't know how we would at this point. I can't think of what other evidence there would be to find. But I will say that the, the best numbers these days seem to be about 3 BC. Um, it seems like we were about three years off, which frankly was pretty good because when we said zero, we were kind of guessing. Um, uh, so 4 BC, so about somewhere in there, though, Jesus is born. And by the way, a lot of these numbers are approximate. 14 AD, Tiberius Caesar takes over and reigns, and he reigns for 22 years, and then he's probably smothered, um, executed by the person who comes after him, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, in 30 AD is when Jesus is crucified, and this is, again, we, we think Jesus was about 33, so if he was born in 3 BC, then that works out really well. If he was born later, then this would probably be a little later. If he was born earlier, this would be a little earlier. But in the same year, obviously, Jesus is crucified, Jesus is alive, and then we come to Pentecost, which is chapter 2. So we'll get to that uh, next week. In about 33 AD, and now we're, we're getting really iffy on some of the dates because we just, the, our markers get a little rough here. But around 33 AD, Stephen is martyred. Possibly, probably even later that same year, Saul is converted. Um, so that happens around 33 AD. 35 AD, Peter uh, leads at Antioch. So Peter becomes sort of the established leader of the church. He leads from a place called Antioch uh, for seven years. 37 AD, uh, Tiberius Caesar is smothered, probably, by Caligula. Caligula, who is uh, an incredibly uh, brutal, sensual, licentious, hedonistic figure, um, reigns for about three years. 41 to 68-ish. So uh, Paul, uh, Peter leads in Rome. He moves from Antioch and he sets up, kind of he leads the church from Rome and James leads the church from Jerusalem. And they're described as kind of two of the pillars of the church. I think in many ways their leadership is seen equivalent. They're just kind of over different regions in many ways. Uh, 41 to 68-ish, Claudius reigns. Um, after Caligula, he reigns for about 13 years. And then Nero reigns for 14 years. Nero is probably uh, crazy as a March hare. Uh, during that time, time frame is Paul's missionary journeys. So essentially, from a little bit into Claudius's reign through Nero's reign, Paul's missionary journeys, um, that's where they take place. And so you can see that Nero and Paul overlap quite a bit. Um, and, and when Nero reigns, particularly after the first few years of Nero's reign, is when it gets really, really rough. Um, part of what happens is that Nero starts to fail um, in his, he's, he's brutal. He's, he's not a great leader. He's a dictator and he, he holds power just by being brutal. But he begins to see that he's failing. He's not succeeding. People don't like him. Um, and so what he does to get out of that is he begins to blame the Christians for everything. Um, he begins to blame them for all the bad stuff happening in Rome. And um, among those, the big thing is there's a big fire that takes out a huge percentage of Rome. It's one of it's just like one of the worst, uh, you know, tragedies to happen to Rome since Augustus Caesar started reigning in 27 BC. And 
and the fire takes out a huge portion of it. And there's all this question, we still don't know to this day, and again, probably never will, what really precipitated the fire. Nero's enemies say Nero did it. Everybody agrees that Nero did nothing about it. In other words, while while Rome burned, the, the saying is Nero fiddled while Rome burned. He just didn't do anything. He, he was very ineffective. Maybe he tried, maybe he didn't, but he didn't accomplish anything to stop it. It kind of raged for far too long. And what Nero claimed was that the Christians had burned down Rome as part of their attempt to overthrow the government. And that's when Paul ends up getting thrown in prison, partly because of that charge, because the, the idea is that he was part of leading this, this great group of missionaries who were going to burn down Rome. And it's at that point, a little bit after that, actually, that the um, the circuses start, the 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 uh, the execution of Christians by 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 the by the the circuses and the the gladiators and the lions and all that. That happens for a fairly brief period. It wasn't a a long period of time, but it does happen for a little bit there. The other thing notable during that time is that uh, Nero begins to kind of as a again to draw that connection between the Christians causing the fire. He begins to use. Christian martyrs as as torches, so he will basically ties them up on top of pillars and lights them like a torch to to light the roads of Rome. Um, so he's brutal. Anyway, that's kind of the that's the timeline there. Um, the other thing about Paul we'll just mention is you'll notice Paul is absolutely calls himself an apostle, but he absolutely does not fit the definition that was just given to us. He was not with Jesus from baptism until resurrection. Um, wasn't with them at all. <laughs> and so, again, we'll, we'll see. Paul makes a defense of that. He explains why he thinks he, he calls himself an apostle abnormally born. So he acknowledges it's different, but he gives a reason. He says, this is why I am an apostle and can be called an apostle. And, and that leads to the question of whether there can then be apostles today. Um, um, and some churches say there are, and some churches say there aren't. And that's... An interesting question, um, which we'll which we'll explore a little bit as we go. Anyway, I just wanted to give you that timeline. Um, you see Pentecost there just changed color. That's where we pick up next week in Acts chapter two is Pentecost. Um, does anybody know what the word Pentecost literally is? What does it mean? Well, good. Then you'll have to come back next week to find out. Okay. Now, any other comments and thoughts? Because I really am out of slides. Um. So did the, so you said it didn't go on for that long with the Christians and the gladiators and stuff like that. How, about how long would you say that it well, went on so, for? So there's a couple of interesting things. And it's, again, it's one of those things that's a little hard to tell. And everybody has an agenda, so it's a little bit hard to know. But gladiators existed for a long time and they pre-existed the christians being thrown in there and gladiators actually fought it was like a career like so the the movie gladiator i can't remember the name does anybody remember the name of the gladiator in the movie gladiator russell crowe oh i don't remember yeah, that's that, his actually. name russell crowe um so the gladiator russell crowe <laughs> he um gladiator crowe is based on an actual historical <laughs> gladiator but the gladiator it's based on actually served as a gladiator for like 40 years he fought over and over and over and over, and it was rarely to the death. Um, so the, the the thing is, it's easy to think of all of the Colosseum circuses as being at their most brutal. It's really only under Nero that they become means of execution. Um, and that's when you start having, and, and yeah, you have people fight bears and lions, but again, the idea 
honestly, that was probably often more brutal to the bears and the lions than it was to the humans who were fighting them. Um, occasionally, humans would get dismembered or die, but off, often it was the animal. But then under, yeah, under Nero, then you do have some situations where you have groups of Christians just thrown into the lions with no weapons and no no means of survival. Um, and and so I don't know. I'll look, I'll see if I can get a more clear idea of how long that went on. Um, I know that when I was in Rome recently, when I was in Rome, I got to go on that great trip to Italy last year. Um, the I don't know if it's just defensiveness or what, but the 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 Romans and even as we went through the catacombs, the guides are very quick to tell you there was not a lot of that. That didn't happen as much as you hear. And I think they're probably right, um, but I also think they're probably a little defensive on behalf of Rome, uh, which is okay too. Um, so um, anyway, yeah. So that that's that's that. So then after like Nero, are they still as violent? Um, it's no, they really weren't. At, uh, after Nero, things change a little bit, and then things get a little bit warmer, and then eventually you get up to Constantine, who makes it the national religion. Um, so between Nero and Constantine, there's a large gap, but but it's it, it it's a movement in a direction where it's they're still persecuted after Nero, but it's just not it's just not the the brutality. Nero was just a brutal guy. Everything he did, he did more brutally than anybody else. That was his his claim to excellence, I guess. <laughs> Anybody else? Claim Any insanity. Yeah. Yeah. His insanity. I mean, it's, it's easy to talk about people being crazy, you know, culture changes people, but Nero did seem to be just kind of nuts. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. The journey is a ministry of discipleship matters, which is an extension of focus church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.